forgiven our debts. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, we're going to jump into this today. Uh, We're continuing our study of the the book of Acts. And I'm curious to know if you guys have ever had uh, a piece of information turn your whole world upside down. There's been a lot of those throughout history, right? You can, you can probably remember some of them. You know, people uh, thought the, the world worked one way, and then they found out that it actually works an entirely different way. Um, I found a list online, actually, of things that people used to very commonly believe. You know, things like uh, that bad smells, not germs, are what cause you to get sick. People believe that the earth was the center of the universe. People believe that the world was flat. You probably know all of those things, but I also found a more interesting list where people were sharing things that they personally used to believe until they were adults and someone broke the truth to them. Things like, maybe you believe some of these yourself, uh, chocolate milk comes from brown cows, right? Eating, eating Pop Rocks and drinking Coke at the same time will make your stomach explode. The favorite one I read was, when an ice cream truck is playing music, it means it's out of ice cream. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> Whoever's mom that is, that's, that is a brilliant, uh, brilliant explanation. I wish I'd thought of it. Um, it doesn't matter how tiny the belief is, though. Finding out that the world is different than you believed it to be is actually pretty difficult to adjust to. It's, it's hard to, to, to grapple with that new information. And this story that we're, we just read is often called um, the, the conversion of Cornelius. But it's really more about the conversion of Peter. It is the story about how he and the rest of the church learned about God's intention to reconcile not just the Jewish nation, but the whole world to himself. Now, I know that most of us here are are most likely what the Bible calls Gentiles, meaning we're not from Jewish descent, and we're also 2,000 years removed from this moment, and so... Uh, we kind of think of this info as common knowledge. We kind of think of this fact kind of like uh, germs make you sick. Like, yeah, of course. That's the way the world works. Of course, God welcomes all people. That's just the way it is. But I hope uh, as we we study this passage uh, that we can connect a little bit with where Peter was in this moment. I think it's necessary for us both to, to understand why Peter struggled to believe this why he was hesitant to go along with God's plan here at first, and, and then also for us to think about the ways that we still struggle with this message. Because um, when we do that, I, I think we may end up with a little bit of a reorientation of our own this morning. We may end up uh, having to adjust ourselves as well. So today I want us to look at three things. I want us to look at, at Peter's struggle to believe, at God's plan for the world, and then our response to it. So Peter struggled to believe God's plan for the world and our response to it. We just read a portion of our our whole text that we're preaching on. It it actually includes all of chapter 10, but we only read the little bit at the end of 11 because it's the same story. Luke tells this entire story twice in a row, and that's not an accident. He tells us the story twice because he wants you to to not miss it. In case you were zoning out the first time you read through it, you're going to hear it the second time. This is an important moment. 
This moment in the book of Acts is, is crucial for us to understand the, the plan for this book. The gospel message going from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. This story is key to that. But even more than that, this story is key to understanding the heart of God. So the story of the Gentile mission, it begins with God interacting with two men around the same time. First, God initiates with this guy, Cornelius. And Cornelius is a Gentile. Cornelius is what uh, they call a God-fearer. And that means he was not, uh, he believed in Yahweh, he worshipped the, the one true God, but he'd not fully converted to Judaism. So uh, he hadn't been circumcised. He wasn't following the dietary food laws. And, and, but God shows up to him, and he tells him in a vision, you need to go find this guy, Peter. Go send some people to find Peter. And right after that, God initiates with Peter. As these guys are walking to Peter's house or whatever they're doing, uh, God gives Peter a vision. He sees, uh, Peter sees this vision of a sheet unraveling, and on that sheet are all different kinds of animals. Birds, reptiles, and God says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Luke also tells us in the passage that Peter's hungry when he gets this vision. Right? That's important. That's not just uh, an extra detail. You need to know that if you're going to understand this. Because, I mean, have you ever been to the grocery store when you're hungry? Right? You know that's like the worst time to go to the grocery store. You might go in there and you're, you're supposed to get bread and milk and like maybe some vegetables or something to cook with your dinner. And what do you leave with? Everything, right? You're, you get all the stuff. You get everything that looks good to you. And then like a, a week later, you're looking in your pantry and you're like, why did I buy canned cream corn? Like, what was that all about? Well, in this moment, Peter is, is, is hungry and God gives him this vision of, of the carnivore's buffet right? Every kind of meat you can imagine. And he says, eat up! But instead of Peter saying, okay, and heading to the checkout line with his cart full of alligator meat or whatever, <laughs> you know, the reptiles are, he says, no way! No, no, not even, not even on an empty stomach. He says, I will not do that. And in our passage, in, in verse 14, he says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. What's that response all about? Well, first of all, Peter, he's objecting to the idea that he would ever break those cleanliness laws that are so deeply a part of the lives of God's people. Laws that are regulating things like uh, ritual washings, right? That's, that's the kinds of laws we're talking about. How you might prepare yourself for worship. Uh, these are laws that talk about certain kinds of foods that you're not supposed to eat. They're the kinds of laws that in the 21st century, we can look back and we can think, yeah, of course we don't follow those laws, right? You know, of course God would, would get rid of those laws, but not so fast. Uh, we need to be careful with, with how quickly we want to dismiss these laws as, as an obvious thing to get rid of, because Peter's primary concern here is not just with the rules. The reason he's hesitant here is because of what those rules represent, of, of why we have those rules in the first place. 
So all those rituals about being clean or, or unclean, in the Old Testament, those rules are there to remind us of a very simple fact. They are there to remind us that, that God is holy and that we are not. That God is righteous and we are sinful. That God is up here and, and we are down here. And when we enter into God's presence, we need to do that with fear and trembling. We need to, to recognize that a relationship with God is not something that is owed to us. In fact, we are, are very far from him. What is truly unclean is not our hands, but it's our souls. And so when Peter hears this command to, to break these rules, he says, no way. It doesn't matter how hungry I might be. I am not going to jeopardize my relationship with God. In fact, he is so opposed to this that, that even though God himself, even though it's God talking to Peter, God has to tell him three times before he's willing to do it. And you, it can kind of maybe seem funny. Like you, can, you can look at him and say, gosh, I can't believe he wouldn't even listen to God on this. Um, but don't laugh it off. We could learn a lot from Peter here. We could learn a lot from Peter's relationship to the law of God. His reverence for the law is the attitude of someone who knows the law. Have you guys ever read Psalm 119? It's the long psalm. It's the psalm that seems to take up like half of the book of Psalms. Um, in Psalm 119, verse 33, here's, here's how the psalmist describes his relationship to the law. He says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the paths of your commandments, for I delight in it. He says, I delight in your law. That's important. God has given us his law, not for punishment. God hasn't given us the law to make us miserable, to burden our lives. He's actually given us his law for our delight. His law for believers, for people who are in Christ, isn't supposed to be a burden. It's supposed to show us, it's supposed to give us the definition of what holiness is. This is what righteousness is. This is a guide for us to become the men and the women that he has created us to be. The law shows us the path of life. But a lot of times in the church, if I'm being honest, I hear people speaking of God's law with disdain. Speaking pretty dismissively about it. Not too long ago, I was talking to someone who claimed to be a Christian, someone who I knew pretty well, and, and in the context, in the course of our conversation, he starts to tell me that, that even some of the Ten Commandments, he says, are, are, are unreasonable expectations. That he couldn't be expected to, to follow any of those things. That people, in general, should not have to limit their lives from 
all kinds of experiences by submitting themselves to these kind of laws. And I think if we're being honest with ourselves, most of us are more like that person than we are like Peter when it comes to our treatment of God's commands. We tend to listen much more intently to the pressures of the culture around us and the hungers inside of us than we do to the Word of God. We don't need a divine revelation to convince us to break God's commands. In fact, we are very happy to read the Bible and just pick and choose what we like. To pick the parts we we, we want to follow and dismiss the parts that we don't. But Jesus had something to say about that, you know. In Matthew chapter 5, he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So at the outset, it's worth asking ourselves, how do we respond to our hungers when they push up against the law of God? Not necessarily for food, right? Not your hunger for, for, for reptiles and birds. <laughs> but but how, our, our hunger for those things like money and sex and, and power and glory. Are we clinging to the law of God saying, no, God, by no means? Or do we easily cave? to the pressures of the world around us. Peter, he struggles with this command because he loves God. He fears God and he loves his law. So what about you? What do you love? What do you love the most? Peter fears God. What about you? What do you fear the most? Whom do you fear the most? That's why Peter struggles. Let's let's talk for a minute about now God's plan for the world. Not too long after that, Peter finds out that this vision uh, has a meaning. And it's not just what he's going to eat for lunch. There's a a significance to this. That's why God shows it to him three times. God shows him three times because Peter needs to listen. He needs to take it seriously. But it tells us that after receiving this vision, Peter's kind of confused. It says, Behold, in the midst of that moment, these guys who Cornelius sent show up at Peter's doorstep. And so Peter uh, meets them and says, I'll go with you. And the next morning they leave. Uh, I read that it's like an eight or nine hour walk, something like that, to Cornelius' house. So Peter goes with these guys. I'm sure continuing to process this vision that he's received. And when he finally gets there, Peter finds Cornelius with this whole crowd of people at his house. And he says, I know what this vision means. Peter says to us in verse uh, 28 of chapter 10, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me 
that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. And then Peter starts to preach. And while he is still in the middle of preaching the message of Jesus and salvation through him, right in the middle of that, the Holy Spirit comes down. And it is this tangible confirmation that Peter got it right, that Peter understood what that vision was all about. So just a quick explanation there. How, how does that happen? How does Peter get a vision, like a literal picture of, of pigs in a blanket, and then say, okay, this means all Gentiles are welcomed into the kingdom of God? Well, here's, here we go, real quick. Those rituals that I was talking about, the, the cleanliness uh, code, those were commands that God had given to the people of Israel, God's chosen nation. And those commandments set them apart from the rest of the world. Those laws set them apart from everyone else. Those, the, that cleanliness code, uh, it was a part of the Old Testament laws that we often call uh, the ceremonial law. Have you guys heard that before? Ceremonial. Say that. Ceremonial law. Okay, so this was a part of the ceremonial law. Ceremonial laws were laws related to the worship of God, specifically related to the worship of God through the temple. So you get laws that tell you how to personally prepare yourself to go and worship at the temple. And you get instructions about how you might prepare a sacrifice for the temple. And you get rules for priests and how they should carry themselves in preparation for those sacrifices at the temple. And they're pretty specific. And you can probably imagine how after generations of people living by these very specific kinds of rules, that it would start to naturally separate them from people who didn't abide by those rules. For instance, if you were not allowed to go around certain meats, then you probably wouldn't eat with certain people. You probably wouldn't go into certain places. Now, on one hand, throughout the Old Testament, God has this message that His plan is to save the world. And the way He's going to do that is through His chosen people becoming a light to the nations. That their worship of God is going to be so great and so attractive that people are just going to be drawn in to this worship and this fellowship. But eventually, these ceremonial codes started to develop into bad theology. One commentator, he put it this way, he said that Israel twisted a doctrine of election into a doctrine of favoritism. They became filled with racial pride and hatred. And rather than becoming this nation that attracts the whole world because of their worship, they started to despise the world. There's lots of writings where they refer to Gentiles as, as dogs. And they started adding to the law. Laws that would literally prevent you from interacting with Gentiles. So even in our text, Peter, he says it's unlawful for a, a Jew to associate with people of other nations. You're not going to find a verse in the Bible that tells God's people, they can't associate with people from other nations. That's, that's something that, that came after. Uh, that's, a, that's a cultural rule that, that they had separated from unclean people. So here's the point. Their effort 
to be theologically pure had made them blind to their racial injustice and had greatly interfered with God's mission to reach the nations. Say that again. Their their effort to be theologically pure had made them blind to their racial injustice and had greatly interfered with God's mission to reach the nations. Now I want to say, especially us Presbyterians, take notice here. We're going to come back to this in just a second. But here's what we need to see. Jesus, when he died on the cross, he brought an end to the ceremonial law. You need to know this wasn't a change of plans. It didn't happen that God looks down and sees the mess that people have made of these rules. And he said, okay, never mind. Time to switch to plan B. This ceremonial law thing isn't working. This wasn't a surprise to God. Jesus didn't wipe out these laws, but it's like that passage I read a second ago in Matthew 5. He says, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, on the cross, Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law by becoming the one-time sacrifice for all sin. He was the true sacrifice that all those lambs and all those goats were in the Old Testament, in the temple. All that stuff was pointing to him. And Peter knew that, right? This is a, that's not what Peter learned. Peter already knew that. Peter's been preaching about that this whole book. He's been talking about how Jesus is the sacrifice that forgives our sins. But until this moment, he hadn't figured out that that meant, of course, all these other laws about preparing for the sacrifice, well, they're not needed either. In other words, he came to realize that repenting of your sin and trusting in the cleanness of Jesus, receiving his righteousness before God, that's what makes God's people really clean. Amen. It's not the rituals. What God requires is not washing or eating certain foods. What is required is the faith to bow down and surrender to Jesus and to be transformed from the inside out by his Holy Spirit. And to Peter's enormous credit, he figures all that stuff out. He puts all that stuff together and starts to preach on it. And while he's preaching, the Holy Spirit shows up and proves his hypothesis. This moment is, it really is the Gentile Pentecost. This is the moment when God uh, pulls back the curtain and reveals this major mystery of the gospel. It's the mystery that Paul talks about in Ephesians, that that God has, has made this mystery in Christ that, that in the fullness of time He's going to unite all things in Him. And it's a glorious thing. It's a glorious revelation. Talk about a mind-blowing moment. Talk about learning that the world is not the way that you thought it was. The world is, is round, right? God's, God's going to save everybody, not just us. Don't let that pass you by. I know you've heard it before if you've been at church, but don't let it pass you by because this means that God's plan in history includes you. It includes me. We have no business being a part of God's kingdom. 
We are not, most of us at least, we're not of Jewish descent. We have no right to expect that God's going to choose us. But he's made a way. And the way he did that was by removing the barriers that stood between us at the cross. That perfect sacrifice for our sins, Jesus, he, he removed the vertical barrier that stood between us and God. He brought us together. But not only that, he also removes the horizontal barriers between us and other human beings. In him there is no longer Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. He tore down the barriers between race, between gender, between classes. God is telling us here that he intends to bring the whole world together in in one big, giant, redeemed church. That's the plan. That's glory. That's, That's awesome. But what does it mean for us? That's the third thing I want to talk about. What's required of us as we try to respond to this message? I read the last section out loud for a reason. That's the section where Peter comes back to the church. And he tells them about what happened there. I don't know if you you heard it, did you, when I was reading it out loud? Did you hear how the church responds when he shows up? What were the first words that they have for Peter? Peter the Apostle. Peter the Apostle, who, by the way, in this whole book, what has he been doing? Well, he's only been preaching and seeing thousands of people converted, being arrested for his faith and miraculously released, healing paralyzed people, bringing people back from the dead. And what is their first response when Peter gets to them? What do they say? Verse 3. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Their first thing to do is to accuse him of sin. Before he gets a chance to talk. They're just waiting there to to catch him. And I wish that that was a surprise. But, unfortunately, this is still all too often the way things go in the church. We are quick to speak. And we are slow to listen, aren't we? It is possible for us to get so caught up in our pursuit of theological precision that we miss the heart of God. And especially in a tradition like this one. I mean, I want to be careful here. You need to know, I love our theology. I care a lot about it. I, I went to school for it. I took a bunch of exams on it. I, I have dedicated my life to teaching other people about it. However, our theology tells us that we have a living God. And we need to be really careful if in the church our posture is to just shut down Christians whenever they express something that we might disagree with. I I want to say that again. We need to be really careful if our default posture is to shut down other Christians 
whenever they express something we disagree with. The fact of history is you can always find an argument against what God is doing. You can always find a theological argument against what God is doing. Go look back and and just look at all the the white evangelicals who had really great, spelled out, doctrinal arguments about why they shouldn't get involved in the civil rights movement. While the, the blood of their brothers and sisters was crying out for the ground. Go and read their theological opinions. And what about us today? How do we respond when people say things that rub us the wrong way? Are are we willing to listen to other people? Or do we just want to make our point? Are we just waiting for them to be quiet so we can talk? I long for us to have a posture of, of love towards our brothers and sisters. Instead of a desire to shut them down and to prove ourselves to be theologically excellent at their expense. And to this church's credit, even though they start off with this hostile posture towards Peter, they actually do listen. It says not only do they listen, but as Peter starts to talk, they are totally persuaded. They end up saying that when they heard these things, they shut up. They fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So how should we respond to this? Well, first, we need to respond to God's messengers in love. And beyond that, beyond just our theological posturing, I want to talk about how we respond to this message. How do we respond to God's intention to reconcile all people to himself? I think we are way too self-congratulatory when we get to texts like this. We are living in a very progressive town, right? Boston is a progressive place. We have no tolerance for racism. We have no tolerance for injustice. And that's good. I'm happy about that. And when we find out that God doesn't have tolerance for that stuff, that his plan is to unite all people together, that makes us happy. We're excited about that. And we should be. We're not surprised, right? We're not shocked like these people in the early church were. We totally agree with with that revelation. Of course God's going to save all people. And then we tend to count ourselves among the good guys when it comes to this call. When it comes to God's call to welcome everyone, we look at ourselves and we think, oh, we're doing a pretty good job. But I want you to think about this book. Remember what story we're reading. Remember the book of Acts. See, the fundamental transition that's happening here is not just a theological one. God is trying to show this church that that they are supposed to go to all the world with the message of the gospel. That they are the ones that are going to be responsible for bringing this message to the Gentiles. Not just to the Jewish people. Not just to the people who are from their own culture. Not just from the people who share all the same inside jokes and cultural references. 
Not just to the people who it's easiest for you to connect with, who hang out in the same places where you hang out, who go to the same coffee shops that you go to, who enjoy the same activities that you enjoy. They're the ones that are supposed to take this message across cultural barriers. And I am very convicted that the church is not doing this. If anything, I look around at the state, not just of our congregation, but the state of the church in general, and, and we are more segmented and more segregated than we have ever been before. And maybe part of it's our fault. We have built these boutique churches for boutique people. You can find exactly your particular flavor of Christianity, and you have a, a variety of choices to choose from. And so you go into those churches, and, and it may not show in our theology. Right? We have good theology. We have all the right lingo, all of our vision statements. They're always about seeing people reconciled to God and one another. But what do our lives look like? What do our lives look like between Sundays? What do our churches look like? I fear that we have lost the urgency of the gospel in favor of our own comfort. In favor of spending time in our own tribes with the people that we get along with. And we would never profess that people are unwelcome. Of course not. People are welcome. We, we always say that. But what are we doing with that theology? Are we pursuing connection with the lost around us? Are we living lives where we might actually encounter Cornelius and his family? In our Monday to Saturday life, do we leave the comforts of our cultural bubble? Or are we just expecting if we wait long enough, the world's going to come to us? I'm glad we have good theology. But you guys know, Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it. This passage, it calls us to respond to the good news, not just with our heads, not just with our hearts, but with our hands and with our feet. That vision, it's telling us that we're supposed to take the gospel to all, that we should actually go. And when we do that, we're going to go in power. We're not going alone. The Holy Spirit is going to be working. Just that, that same Holy Spirit that was working to initiate with Cornelius and Peter and bring them together in this crazy way at this exact same time, that God is still working. And He's working in this city. He's working in people's lives right now. And one day, he promises that at the end of all that working, every tongue and tribe and nation will all be gathered together worshiping him at his throne. So what would it be like in that day if you could look around and know that you had an impact? If you could look around and see how God used you to bring that day about? What if we could really celebrate this news that turned the world upside down? That God offers salvation not just to the people like us, but to everybody. And that he can use us in that process.
Let's pray.